Hello, everyone, and welcome to In the Spotlight, Goodspeed Musicals podcast, where we deep dive into classic musicals one at a time. I'm one of your hosts, Michael Fling, here on the artistic staff at Goodspeed, and I'm so pleased to be joined by the human-eating plant in my life, Annika Capen, Goodspeed's resident dramaturg and artistic associate. Hi, Annika. Hi. That might be my favorite intro yet. Before we get started, a couple of housekeeping announcements. First, we are so pleased to announce that starting tomorrow, if you're listening on our release date, you will be able to stream Shaken the Blues Away, a virtual gala concert for Goodspeed, for a week, um, a project that we both put a lot of time and energy into, and we're so excited is debuting. Uh, you can get more information at goodspeed.org. Uh, you can't miss it. It's a very exciting uh, event that we produce. I mean, really, we produced a musical movie. It's very, very exciting. So go over to goodspeed.org, check that out, get your tickets. I promise it will bring many a smile and maybe a little tear to your eye. And second, in that spirit of community, such a community has popped up around our little show. Uh, and as I now affectionately refer to the audience as the spotters, that we are debuting channels on social media. So follow us on Instagram and Twitter and like us on Facebook uh, at In The Spot Pod. In The Spot Pod, all one word is the handle on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and I think that's the Facebook address too, although you could just search In The Spotlight and you'll get there. But go ahead and follow us on social. We'll be sharing content related to the shows we talk about here and just fun musical theater content to bring smiles to everyone's face as we head into what may be a very dark winter. Yes, and I will say both of us are very good at finding gems around musical theater from all corners of the internet. So even if you don't listen regularly to the podcast, you'll enjoy whatever weirdness we can discover. I am very excited for what we are sharing in relation to this particular episode. A fantastic transition. So Annika, remind us what the clue was in our last episode and tell us what show we'll be diving into this episode. Well, the clue that I gave was that this show inspired a short-lived cartoon series um, that ran on Fox Kids in 1991. And this is true. The show that we are doing this week, Little Shop of Horrors by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, the great Howard Ashman, did inspire this very short-lived cartoon that I did not know about, but now I'm so happy I do, called Little Shop. Uh, which was about a young Seymour and Junior, who was his rapping flytrap. And it only lasted 13 episodes, but I think I'm going to make it my life's business to find all 13 of those episodes. So on our socials, we have shared the trailer for this particular piece of trivia, and uh, I highly recommend it. It is pretty amazing. It's <laughs> wild. It's wild. So with that, I think it's time for the speed test. Hudson's Florex doesn't matter. Where I do my best to summarize Little Shop of Horrors in less than one minute. All right, so I've got a minute on the clock. I I I don't know. This one may be rough, team. I don't know. Crystal, Ronette, Chiffon, go. <laughs> oh, dare you? Um, okay, so Skid Row. We've got uh, a trio of fabulous ladies to introduce us to Skid Row and to Mushnick's Flower Shop. Uh, run by Mr. Mushnick and featuring his young clerk, 
Seymour Krelborn, who is nerdy and precious and delightful, and his co-clerk slash employee, Audrey, who uh, is criminally uh, abused by her uh, masochistic dentist boyfriend. Um, and uh, essentially, in order to, you know, Seymour's weird, and he is a master horticulturist, and uh, ends up uh, creating, maintaining, and growing this weird plant that um, feeds off of human blood. Uh, and so... Oh my God. Oh my God. And so Audrey, it becomes Audrey too. He names it after her because he's in love with her and uh, it ends up eating all of them. <laughs> oh my God. That was a minute. Yeah. Sorry. I should have given you a 30 second warning, but I was caught oh my up. In God, I thought I still had so much time. Wow. Okay. That was quick. And that of course brings us to why God, why? Why God? Why today? where we talk about the big idea. What is the theme that connects all the characters and why are the authors telling this story? This one is difficult for um, this particular uh, segment, I would say, because I'm not sure that it really has a governing thematic purpose beyond um, immense camp and entertainment value and being its weird, quirky, authentic self. Uh, is, for the most part, I would say, its governing purpose in terms of authorship. Uh, secondary to that, though, it has a heart the size of all outdoors. And I think that heart sometimes causes some problems for the show. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but I do think that that marriage of camp entertainment, yet huge heart, really is what sets this show apart and becomes the governing purpose. But Annika, how would you look at why they're telling this story? Yeah, I mean, I think, as you said, it's a bit tricky because this is what I would sort of call a genre piece. Um, it's definitely a comedy. It's also a little bit of a pastiche of the original 1960s sort of comedy horror film. Um, so when you're dealing with something that's partially a nod to that kind of thing. You're dealing with a slightly different set of rules. Um, but I do think that the, the message that can be drawn at the heart of this um, is, first of all, it's a, it's a Faustian bargain story. Um, it's about someone who decides to, in essence, uh, give his soul, sell his soul to the devil in exchange for fame and fortune. It, it takes a slightly different form in this one, but, um, I think if there's a message here, it is that Seymour and Audrey are both people who, who don't feel they deserve anything at all. And what becomes clear over the course of the show is that even though Audrey too allows them to feel that confidence in themselves, if they had just believed in themselves from the beginning and Seymour had had the wherewithal to be able to, to turn away this plant, um, they might've had a happier ending. So I think the message is sort of, you know, you can find it in yourself. You don't have to find it in an, an evil uh, alien plant from outer space bent on taking over the world. Um, so that's kind of what I would say that the message is. But again, it's a little bit tricky in this particular one, especially when you look at 
the two different endings that this show has the original one in the show which is very different if you're if you've only seen the movie then you've seen a very different ending which is much happier um than the one in the show which is much more true to the original sort of um and darker and basically the plant just eats everyone and takes over everything so um that's that's the message in there i think well, I think you also bring up a really, you know, to over dramaturg it from my end, not that I'm a dramaturg, but to really look at the thematic connection, I guess, what you raised and that that I thought was interesting, that one of the things that I definitely uh, runs through the show is kind of this corruption of a certain level of innocence, right? That like, there are these innocent dreamers, and they're corrupted by this plant in the case of Seymour corrupts his like, you know, ability his his want to seek some fame and fortune and recognition for who he is. Audrey is kind of taken advantage of in her, de, her dream for a basic domestic existence. This idea of a flower shop that is so innocent and so like, oh, a flower shop, what bad could happen in a flower shop is corrupted by, you know, the plants and even something, you know, the dentist, which we all go to the dentist. I mean, it's a very pedestrian kind of thing, but is corrupted by his masochism and, and, you know, all the things. So there is this, like, there is an interesting undercurrent of corruption of innocence that I'm sure some master's thesis has given a great an, an analytical dive on somewhere. Yeah, it's interestingly enough, it's one of those shows where it's, on some level, it's operating at a relatively shallow level because it's you know this relatively simple story um again pastiche of this kind of car comedy horror genre um simple but at the same time there's a lot on its mind in certain ways i mean i think it has something interesting kind of to say about poverty too and how how little um hope you have if you're just someone who's stuck forever in this terrible situation that you can't really get out of. Um, again, all of these things are very lightly touched on. So I'm, I'm not saying that this is, you know, the, the thing you're supposed to leave the theater with, but there's a lot to work with in this show. It's definitely something that's surfacey, but written by extremely smart people. 2020 political Twitter coming in with an anti-capitalist message and little shop horrors. <laughs> so with that, before we get to 20, the 2020 of it all, Annika, why don't you take us back to before and tell us about the origins of Little Shop of Horrors. We can never go back to before. Gladly, because it allows me to talk about two things I love to talk about, which is Faustian bargain stories and the work of Roger Corman. Um, I'm not really going to talk that much about Faustian bargain stories. As I said, um, Faustian Faust is a story that is was a legend. Uh, it was kind of based on a German legend that was about a real person, maybe several people, um, but mostly it's Johann Georg Faust, who was a magician and an alchemist who lived around 1500. Um, and then there are many, 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 many versions of uh, the story that has come down through history, sort of based on this real person. But the idea of it basically is a person who is offered what they want by the devil and decides to take that bargain. And it almost never goes well, <laughs> pretty much. So the the kind of most famous kernel of it is the Christopher Marlowe play, The Tragical History of Dr. Faustus, which was published in 
published in 1604. Um, there's also a Goethe version of the story, which is pretty well known. Anyway, again, I, I'm just going to touch on it because you could literally spend hours talking about any version of it. It's a fascinating model um, archetype of stories on which many, 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 many things are built. So there's, there's my little tiny little Faust bit. But let's move forward to uh, the 20th century. So basically, Little Shop of Horrors, the musicale, is based on a movie also called Little Shop of Horrors, although it had a different title originally. Um, when they were developing it, the title that they were working with was The Passionate People Eater, which I'm kind of sad they lost. But this musical is based on this movie. The movie um, was created over the course of five days, pretty much, uh, by director Roger Corman, who is a really fascinating figure in the history of American entertainment, in the history of American film. He was very well known for making small movies very cheaply. Um, he's now best known for his schlocky horror films, but basically these very kind of, we think of them as drive-in films, um, low budget, low production value from the 1950s, um, just this kind of that genre of thing. Um, so he had made a movie called A Bucket of Blood, and he was told that the set was still up and that he could do whatever he wanted on that set before it was torn down. So there are rumors that Roger Corman made Little Shop of Horrors because he was bet that he couldn't make a movie in a few days. Um, but apparently this wasn't true. Apparently this is kind of lore that has been passed down. And somebody who was in the movie said what was more uh, true was that Corman wanted to make a movie before the rules changed that would give actors residuals for all the movies they had appeared in, which would significantly change the model in which Corman made his movies, which was like very fast and very cheap. Um, and so he wanted to get something in before the clock struck one on 1960, which is when this would take effect. But in any case, they had this set, they had a few days and Roger Corman decided he was gonna make a movie. So he and the writer Charles B. Griffith, who he worked with a lot, threw around a bunch of ideas for what they would make this movie about. It was maybe gonna be a detective thing, it was maybe gonna be something else. And then they decided to settle on the idea of the man eating plant, which is also a sort of story trope that has some antecedents, but I'm not even gonna go into that. So Griffith feverishly wrote the script. They hired a lot of actors that they had worked with before, um, including some of their family members. The writer Griffith himself is in the movie, as is his father and his grandmother, which I love. Um, Jack Nicholson, who had been in two of Roger Corman's previous movies, plays a patient of the sadistic dentist in the movie. So it was all kind of what they had at hand, basically. And of course, the set, which was already up. So they wrote the script, they had three days of rehearsal, and over the course of two days, they did all the shooting that they needed to on the set. They did a little bit more um, external stuff after. They did things like pay a group of children five cents each to run out of a subway tunnel. And there was a group of quote unquote winos who appeared as extras for 10 cents. Um, all in all, they spent $1,100 on 15 minutes worth of exteriors. They cut together a score that was basically a mix of the scores they have already written for their other movies um, that already had been written for other movies. And they did some funny stuff, like when they were editing it, there was one moment that it, the editing was too abrupt. So there was just a nice shot of the moon that they decided to just cover this moment with. And then later they said that, you know, they, they came across a, an article in a magazine that was eight pages about 
the significance of that shot of the moon, but it was really just thrown together, super last minute, um, very, very fast, very, very down and dirty. Um, the whole thing cost around $30,000, Roger, according to Roger Corman, uh, very cheap. And originally the movie had some trouble finding distribution it, because distributors were worried it would be seen as anti-Semitic uh, because characters like Mushnik, and there was another character whose name was Siddhi Shiva, um, were a little off-putting to some of the distributors, but eventually it was picked up and it was released as a B movie with another film, which then became a little bit successful and thus Little Shop of Horrors also got out there. And once it got out there, it became a cult hit. It was shown often in the 60s and the 70s on late night television, which is how a lot of people first encountered it. It became a sort of uh, standard for that kind of late night programming. Um, and it's interesting, Roger Corman had such little faith in the movie's financial prospects that he never actually got a copyright for the movie, which means that the movie has always been in the public domain, which was probably a bad call. Just get a copyright for whatever you make, even if you make it in basically five days and two days of filming. So the interesting parallel there, so Howard Ashman saw it on TV when he was about 14 and loved it and the cult way that so many people had. So after he and his collaborator, Alan Menken, had uh, a moderate success initially with a musical called God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, it was not successful in its transfer to off-Broadway. And they were both pretty depressed um, that this major opportunity had really kind of ended up in a fumble. And Ashman suggested that they should take, they should do something fun for their ne next project that was fun and upbeat and uh, a change of pace for both of them. And that led him back to this idea of making a musical out of this cult movie, which Mencken had never seen. And so after Ashman approached him about it, it happened to be on TV a few weeks later and they recorded it on VHS and both kind of agreed that it would make a great musical. And funnily enough, Howard Ashman, when he was 16, had written like a bad musical, I guess, for a school project or something that also featured like a Venus flytrap-like plot that is similar that he recalls as being terrible, but it's just a fun little nugget of trivia. So it they decided they would produce it at the WPA, which was a theater that Ashman was a part of the leadership of, um, very downtown, offbeat, um, kind of the they joke that it was uh, WBA stood for will produce anything uh, when in reality it really stands for workshop of the players art foundation um, and it took them about a year to get the rights secured for the movie which to me is funny considering it was actually in the public domain the whole time but I'm sure it had something to do with distribution rights and whatnot but the entire writing process only took them about eight months uh, and they were, Mencken in particular was really inspired by the 60s vibe of the movie and thought that that palette would be really great to draw from for the score. And uh, Ashman said about really working on the outline and the structure of the piece, which he really felt like he made substantial improvements to how the film was structured, excising a lot of characters and cutting some unnecessary story elements, uh, really getting to the heart of the material. And they both kind of say that once they really settled on that outline and how the show would sound, it took them about eight weeks to write the show, which is pretty extraordinary when we look at the the other shows that we've profiled thus far and the more traditional process by which musicals are developed. That's, in, I mean, obviously incredibly fast to uh, 
turn around and write something that has such staying power and um, of such a high quality and something that is so authentic to uh, what it is. So this all culminates in a production at the WPA, which is a knockout success for them. Uh, tons of great reviews. They're selling tickets at a pace that they can hardly keep up with. I mean, a massive success for them and for this small, small theater company um, in downtown New York. So then the conversation becomes about transferring uptown to an off-Broadway house. There was also some talk of the show transferring to Broadway, though everyone kind of cons agreed that that was not in keeping with the tone of the piece and in keeping with the spirit of the show. So it moves off-Broadway to the Orpheum Theater, where it becomes one of the longest-running musicals in off-Broadway history, and actually, by some metrics, the highest-grossing off-Broadway musical of all time. I think it depends on what you're including in that when you talk about that. But um, it's a massive success and really catapults um, Ashman and Mencken into the musical stratosphere. I mean, they ride the success of Little Shop of Horrors all the way to their now hugely mainstream classic musical animated films for Disney, which for uh, any of you who may not totally know their career as I do, would be Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Obviously, three giants in the Disney world. So it obviously has a big movie adaptation um, that is now quite famous, uh, directed by Frank Oz, who initially turned it down, in fact, um, but at the time was one of the most expensive movie musicals that had ever been made, which is, you know, funny considering the uh, very scrappy uh, and uh, low-budget nature of the original production. Uh, but the movie has a huge fan base, um, but the most notable change about the movie, besides its starry cast and big budget, uh, is the substantial change made to the end of the story, which um, ends far happier in the final cut of the movie that was released, um, because the original ending that they had filmed, which was the ending of the musical tested absolutely horribly with test audiences. Um, there are uh, stories that the audience was clapping along, loving the movie, everything was amazing, and all the scores were high until that very last moment, and then the scores just plummeted. So the studio, because they had put such money into it, insisted that they get rid of the very high-tech, um, very expensive, like multi-million dollars that they spent on this ending of the movie that um, they get rid of it in favor of a happier ending. Uh, and the movie obviously has been quite successful. Now that original ending has um, kind of survived uh, based from the original producer who had a good copy of it and has been released in a director's cut that um, I think now that the movie is established, I think everyone agrees that that ending is probably more in the spirit and would have been great. But at the time it was such an unknown campy property trying to launch into the mainstream. And so for it to be successful, they, they made that compromise. And interestingly enough, it's, it hasn't had much of a presence on Broadway ever since. I mean, it, that original, even though it was very successful, did not go to Broadway. The first time it made it to Broadway officially was in 2003 in a revival that was Yes, met with sort of mixed reviews, I would say. It wasn't super successful. 
And then in 2019, they brought it back again, but they, they kept it off Broadway. It was not a Broadway revival, but it still kind of exists as a, uh, not a Broadway show. It is extremely popular in uh, high school and community theaters because it's a very small show that's very easy to do in a uh, kind of low budget way and still have it be really successful. Also, because it's popular and uh, people love the show. So Annika, why don't you take us into the words and show us what's inside somewhere that's green. What's inside? Everyone wants to know what's inside. All right. So we are going to dive into somewhere that's green, which how could I not do somewhere that's green? It's such a good song. It's such a great I want song. It's such a great character portrait. It's just a really great song. There's a lot of great songs in this score, and this might be in many ways the most obvious choice for me to talk about, but whatever, I couldn't resist it. So so let's dive in. Um, so first of all, uh, as I said, this is definitely an I want song. However, it's not the protagonist's I want song. So it happens a bit later in the show than you'd normally find the I want song, which usually is one of the first songs because we're meeting the protagonist, we want to know what they want. And at this point in the script, in we've we've met everybody. We know Seymour, we know Audrey, we know Audrey is with an abusive dentist, that she has sort of criminally low self-esteem. We know that Seymour has a big crush on her. We know that Audrey too is around. We know that Audrey too is carnivorous. We've already seen um, Audrey to be the reason that the shop is starting to take off and it's all going pretty well. Uh, the song itself is prompted by Audrey missing Seymour's big interview because she was with Oren and the urchins uh, saying that she should be dating Seymour. They're the ones who first bring this up as a thing. And Audrey reveals that she doesn't feel worthy of a nice guy like Seymour because she has a past. And then we get this song. So this is a song um, in the ways of many I Want songs. It's just for her and for us. It's basically a monologue, a soliloquy, um, a personal moment that we are getting a glimpse inside of this character. And, and this is such a gentle, gentle song. And it's a fascinating song to look at because it's really simple on many levels and it's really complex on a lot of different levels. It's a comedy song because there's something really sweetly funny about this character whose big dream is basically this 1950s suburban middle-class existence. As she said, it's not fancy like Levittown and Levittown is like the most middle-class, you know, tract houses, housing development, um, it's a very achievable goal. It was created to be an achievable goal. Uh, this American dream world where you can live in a house, own a house by yourself. I mean, it's it's not something that is usually treated like this golden dream that you couldn't possibly achieve. Um, and the show could, could mock her for this, but it really doesn't. It's really sweet. And it manages to both make fun of suburbia and these stereotypes of that 1950s existence, but never ever actually mock Audrey herself for wanting those things. Because we are made to feel that, that anyone who mocked Audrey is cruel and awful because she is so sweet and honest and vulnerable and just a gem of a human being. So 
there's something very funny about it while at the same time never making Audrey the butt of the joke. It's such a fine line and it's I'm not totally sure how they manage it to be totally honest with you because it should feel more like it's making fun of her and yet you really never ever do so there's just a lot of stuff going on including um this interesting subtext about class and poverty in America um and how horrible it is to be in Skid Row, to be this level of poor poverty, um, that your dream, your unattainable dream is to just literally have a house and be middle class. Um, it, this is just the, the literally the next step out of Skid Row for Audrey. And yet to her, it's just presented like it's this glorious dream in a palace. But we know that it's difficult for her. You know, we, we, we can feel that this dream is probably not attainable for her. Other things to talk about. Uh, oh yeah, I just love this part too. The, uh, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman themselves talked about how this model was a, um, how this song was a model for part of your world in The Little Mermaid. And it's really an apt comparison. Both women are longing for something that seems completely boringly normal to us, but which is exotic and the furthest away dream to them. I haven't seen anybody talk about this, but I think also that there has to be an overt reference to somewhere over the rainbow in this song too, uh, because the, I mean, obviously it's in the title, somewhere that's green, somewhere over the rainbow. Um, I think they're, they're intending to, for us to think of that song, which is literally about somewhere that's a impossible other world, dreamy land, you know, far off place that barely exists and somewhere that's green, which is like the most attainable thing, which is just like basically a house with a lawn and a housing development. Um, I think there's supposed to be some humor in the contrast of that. Uh, although I couldn't find anyone actually saying that anywhere that that was in their minds when they wrote it but whatever I'm putting it there if they didn't think of it although they these were very two very smart people so I'm pretty sure that that has to be in there too and I am using the movie soundtrack recording of Somewhere That's Green which is very similar to the original not Broadway recording but off-Broadway recording um except for it cuts out a bit of the dialogue and I think the sound is a little bit clearer um it's still Ellen Green of course playing Audrey the great, the Audrey, Ellen Green. So let's listen. I know Seymour's the greatest, but I'm dating a semi-sadist. So I got a black eye and my arms in a cast. All right, so right off the bat, this entire show is written in a sort of 1950s pop pastiche. There's a lot of musical styles uh, that are referring to the girl groups of the 50s. Um, we get a lot of that kind of sci-fi uh, drive-in movie sort of sound. And we're getting a little tiny touch of that here uh, because you can hear that the, the orchestration is so simple at the start of this. It's basically only a very simple piano. And then this kind of organ, this electronic organ sound. Um, this is the 80s, so obviously it's a synthesizer now, but um, you can hear that what that 
instrument that would be in these sci-fi movies that would be in the movie palaces playing this kind of schlocky sound uh this sort of otherworldly noise um but here it's very very gentle right it's just providing this little background we're in this kind of um horror movie world but we're also it's a little bit sort of like a little bit dreamy there's something a little bit dreamy in there and of course as she sings about seymour she's got that little hope right I know Seymour's the greatest, it comes up, but then she sings about Orin and turns darker and the melody pulls down into the dumps a little bit, the reality of her situation. So I got a black eye and my arms in a cast. So not only when Audrey is talking about this horrible physical abuse that she suffers at the hand of Orin, um, does it pull down into the dumps a little bit, but I think Howard Ashman does a, a brilliant thing here. The rhyme, Seymour's the greatest, and but I'm dating a semi-sadist, is a very clever lyric. You don't see necessarily sadist coming when it's starting with greatest, and it's very funny. Um, but it's it's right on the edge of being a little too knowing for Audrey, who is a simple character, who's very, very sweet, but we no, she's not very clever. Um, we know she's not really someone who makes a lot of jokes. The jokes that she has are kind of almost accidental. Like when she says, you know, she got tied up. No, she just got a little handcuffed a little. She's, she's literal. She tends to be very kind of sweetly um, literal. And eh, a word like sadist does not necessarily seem like something she would probably know. But I think Howard Ashman is very brilliant here. Um, because he's putting this, this rhyme, which is probably the cleverest line in the song, the rest of them are very, very simple uh, rhymes, which befits Audrey's dream and this kind of simple world that she's dreaming of. He's putting this lyric right at the front. So he's throwing the joke into a, a place before we've really gotten into this dream world of Audrey, before we're on the ride with her into this, uh, fantasy world of hers if he had put a joke like this later we might have been thrown out of the lyric by by thinking well that's a very clever thing for audrey to say huh who knows why she would hear that word it, it like rings a little bit false in terms of character just a tiny tiny touch um and so they're putting it here before we're actually really emotionally invested in the song so that's that's what a smart lyricist is going to do and what a clever lyricist is going to know that you can make a joke like this that's not 100 necessarily right for the character but you have to do it at a time where it's not going to endanger the storytelling of the song still let's see more the cutie well, if not, he is good enough, beauty. And I dream of a place where we could be together at last. Oh, it's so sweet. It just pulls you in. It's so small and it's so lovely, this song. So after telling about 
her injuries, which has pulled the melody back down. She's come back up to talk about Seymour, which is very Audrey. She's an optimist. She doesn't like to dwell on things that are sad or bad. She likes to come back to what's good. And so she's got a black eye, her arms in a cast. She's in a terrible, awful, abusive relationship, but she can dream of being with someone who isn't like that with Seymour. And she's realistic about him. I love that she says that Seymour's a cutie. And then there's that great little piano uh, moment where it almost sounds like the piano is a little bit laughing at that because obviously Seymour, as he's conventionally cast, is not a, a handsome or conventionally attractive person, although sometimes he is cast like that. We'll talk about that later. But there's no question that he's beautiful inside. And she's kind of defending him against this little piano laughter, which is what the world would say, right? Um, but she can see that he's more than that. And she cares more about that than she does about the fact that he's handsome or not handsome. And we get this wonderful thing that is big news to us that she dreams of being with Seymour. We know that he has a crush on her, but we don't know that she likes him too. We thought maybe she was oblivious about to him, um, but not at all. Not only does she like him too, she dreams of a world where they can be together. And there's that little climb on to be together at last, right? There's space for all of this. She has this time all on her own and she's just towing the waters of dreaming this dream. She's allowing herself to go there. Um, and of course we have this textbook set up for an I want song. She's literally saying, I dream of a place where we can be together at last. And then the entire song is gonna be the explanation of that. Again, if you think of somewhere over the rainbow, um, the whole setup for that song is, where would I go that I'm not gonna get in trouble? Where, it's, where is that place? And then she starts to sing over the rainbow. So um, I think this is a little bit of a tip of the hat to, to that. It's just a very, very simple structure, which is super effective here, super correct for Audrey, who's a character who's not very complicated, uh, dreaming a dream that is not very complicated either. And that's kind of the, the sweetness and the silliness and the fun of this song. So great. So when Audrey starts to imagine this world, because this is her fantasy coming to life, she's painting a picture for us. I love that that electronic sort of sci-fi organ sound, uh, which brings to mind this this world that she exists in, this the the world of the reality of this story, it falls away. And so all we have is this kind of purer, cleaner sound of what she's dreaming of, right? She's not the instrumentation is taking us out of the very horrific reality of Skid Row and the kind of world of the setting of this story of this show, um, which is, of course, this horror movie pastiche and goes to this this place that's just 
somewhere else, somewhere cleaner and purer, which of course is mirroring what the song is doing. And here we have the joke of the song. All of these things are not what the audience would consider desirable or, fan or fancy, a fence of real chain link, which of course is the contrast, you know, you, something like that, you would imagine like a, a bracelet of real diamonds, you know, but this is just the simplest. Chain link fences are so basic, not pretty, not beautiful, not something people want usually. Um, but each of them is presented with these little, like they're each kind of given their own beautiful little platform. She's imagining them so clearly. She's painting this for us. Um, and I love the swoop on a washer and a dryer and an ironing machine. You know, it just, it kind of is this like little cascade of this wonder. And she says, I mean, God bless Ellen Green, the awe with which she says an ironing machine is you know, just beyond. Who can imagine this beautiful things that would be hers? Um, and usually, of course, all of these things, suburbia, developments full of tract houses, you most often encounter this in art as, as kind of hell, right? A prison or a hell. But to Audrey, it's heaven. And, and it's funny, but it's also a little bit heartbreaking because she wants so little, but we also know that for her, it's so, so much. The contrast in this song is just brilliantly put up against itself all the time. Um, this lofty dream of this very achievable goal, um, you know, this, whether it's little, whether it's big, it's both treated as this like little thing that's, that's a dream in her heart and this, this thing she couldn't possibly achieve. And the melody, of course, gets all of this. Uh, we can hear this grandness for her in these in these melodies of the the washer and the dryer just going up, reaching up there. Um, but there's a bittersweetness to it, uh, which kind of indicates that she doesn't really expect that she will ever really achieve this dream. She lives in Skid Row. She has this nowhere job at a failing flower shop, and she dates terrible, abusive men. There's nothing about her life that indicates that she's going to be able to get out of where she is which is why there's something even more beautiful about the melody on somewhere that's green. Just that particular phrase. It's simple, it's small, and it feels like the sweet little kernel of hope. Um, it's just for her. You know, this is not something that she shares a lot and we can hear that. And of course we have to talk about the phrase somewhere that's green. God bless Howard Ashman and Ellen Megan. I mean, all of all of this is so simple and yet it contains so much. So one, the most literal meaning, she wants to be around trees and grass. Although she's, considering she's talking about suburbia, it's probably mostly grass, not a ton of trees, but whatever. It's, it's basically a state forest, a beautiful mountain view compared to Skid Row where she lives, which has nothing living, even in the plant store where she works for the most part. Um, there's the reference again to somewhere over the rainbow. And then there's the ironic foreshadowing, which is of course that she will indeed end up somewhere that's green because she will be eaten by Audrey to a plant. So at this point, we probably realize what kind of show we're seeing. We know that there's a carnivorous plant who is um, only gonna get bigger and more dangerous. We know that Audrey is the love interest of the hero and this is a Faustian bargain story. Uh, we probably have some suspicion of what she's talking about. So there's a lot of layers in there. Bows to mow and weed. I cook 
film soundtrack so we get this little instrumental that sounds almost like a music box you would open up um which is perfect for this dream of an encapsulated 1950s you know female femininity um this music box music box was a perfect thing for a little dream and it feels a little childlike this whole thing so the fact that we have this little moment is perfect but then it opens up into the full dream audrey has fully dived into this fantasy um, she's really feeling it. She's really bringing it to life for us. And so, of course, all of these instruments come in. It's fully illustrated now. We're fully there. And of course, what's really real about this for her, most important, is her and Seymour. Seymour is the totally stereotypical 1950s father. She is the totally stereotypical 1950s housewife. Um, they live in this surface magazine spread 1950s life. You know, he loves the chores he has to do. Um, she cooks like Betty Crocker and she looks like Donna Reed. Ugh, Howard Ashman, such a brilliant lyricist. That's an amazing internal rhyme there. But there's something shallow about all of this, but it feels right. It's a faraway dream for her that she's probably only ever seen magazines and on TV. It has no basis in reality for her because her reality is so far from this. Um, not to mention the reality of a happy, stable marriage, which seems to be very, very different from any relationship she has ever had. Um, which is so sad, but so sweet. Between a frozen dinner and our bedtime, 9.15, we snuggle watching Lucy on a big, enormous 12-inch screen. So here's the chorus, but it's interesting because the chorus doesn't change. Uh, it's more of the same. It's just imagining more of the suburban idol this this actual night that they're living um they go to bed at 9 15 which is so early you know everything is again one joke after another uh, in this world making fun of this kind of uh perfect 1950s life which feels very far from what people actually live but that's fine because that's what audrey imagines right and um He's ending this run of imagery, this run of jokes with probably the most uh, loaded joke in the song because it's not only just making fun of the 1950s dream, it's the additional fun of, you know, big enormous 12 inch screen. Everybody in the audience would laugh at this idea that somebody would consider a 12 inch screen um, to be big enormous. So it's like kind of one of the most solid um, jokes in the song and she gives it this little trill right it's so exotic it's special um 12 inch screen at the end his father he knows best the kids play howdy doody as the sun sets in the west Oh, picture out of better homes And gardens 
So after we get this big, enormous 12-inch screen, we go back to the verse, and this feels like the warmest, truest part of the fantasy yet. They may be playing stereotypical roles, but they're a family. But I think that there's something to this. It sounds like she's coming out of the fantasy a little bit. Um, and I think there's a double meaning to a picture out of Better Homes and Gardens magazine. Her dream is both completely perfect, picture perfect, literally. But I think there's also something to this line where she's realizing that it's not real, that it's basically a magazine spread she's brought to life. And this melody serves that very nicely here because it kind of pulls her back down to earth through to the end of the song. So this is kind of the turning point, the dramatic turning point in the full arc of this particular song. And let's hear the end. Oh man. Oh, so she's realized that her picture out of Better Homes and Gardens magazine, that her dream is is not real. She's been reminded, brought back down to earth of of what she her dream is, which is something that's kind of shallow and something that's not necessarily realistic. And then there's this beautiful gut punched so emotional so honest so real line that they brilliantly allow to be totally in the clear we just hear it there's there's air on either side of it every word gets its own weight it's so beautifully done which is just far from skid row and we can hear in that that this is ultimately the root of this entire thing. You know, she just wants to get away from her reality, from this terrible place she lives, from being poor, from being in a terrible relationship with someone who treats her really terribly. It's, you can just hear how, how pure that is right there. And you could place this lyric as something you just brush past. You know, it wouldn't be impossible just to speed that up a little bit and just have it be a part of that whole phrase. Continuous, far from Skid Row, I dream we'll go somewhere that's green and really hit somewhere that's green. But they don't do that. They make sure that this line lives on its own, that you hear it. And so because of this, this is just dropping this song from any sort of comedy place into a real reality place. And of course, this song has done this the entire time. It's the most 
real, authentic, honestly grounded song that is also a comedy song. That is a very, very difficult thing to do. They've done it really, really well. And then of course you get the next line, which equally gets its space. I dream will go. Not quite as much space as the first one because we don't need as much space for this. Um, this is a dream of hers. We know that she dreams of this. This whole song has been about that. She wants to get out. She's a dreamer. And then we get the dream itself. And there's something so melancholy about both of those phrases. I, far from Skid Row, and I dream will go. But then somewhere that's green here is just given its own little pillow. It's this sweet little kernel of a melody, this hopeful, happy little thing for her, which of course is made even sadder by the foreshadowing that it is. If you're realizing that, then you're going to feel really sad and bittersweet about what her potential future is. So this song is just a brilliant, brilliant thing. It's simple, but it's very complicated. It's honest, but it's also a parody. It's a comedy song while also making us deeply care about the person that we are not mocking, although we are sort of mocking. It's just for something that seems like it's easy peasy and not that complex. It's actually extremely complex. And now we know so much about Audrey. We know so much about who she is, about this. She's a dreamer, that she dreams of this kind of simple life, that she looks to the good always, but that deep down she really, really does not like where she is. She does not like the situation she's in. Um, and we just care about her so, so much. So I can understand why audiences for the film didn't accept the ending of the show, which is very, very dark because you do care so much about her um, and you do just want her to have something good happen to her after all of this crap that we've seen her go through when she's such a good person. She doesn't deserve any of that. So um, this really sets you up to care about her in a deep and true way. Uh, and it's just, just a really, really sweet, lovely song that it's hard to imagine this show without. And so Somewhere That's Green, great character, Audrey, A++ song. And now it is time for one of our favorite segments, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria? How do you solve a problem like Maria? Where we talk about some of the issues with the show, both internal and external, that uh, impact productions of it, its, its existence. So it does have this inherent camp value that is a driving force in it, but it also has these characters with great heart and great ambition and, and we love them. And personally, I think a lot of productions, I would say over sentimentalize the piece and make it too much about that heart. And therefore the ending then feels completely awful and terrible because we've absolutely fallen in love with these characters and that has been what has led the storytelling. Whereas I will say, because personally, I was not a big Little Shop fan for a very long time because I loved everything up until the ending. I had seen very sentimental productions of it that I loved the score for all the reasons that one does and it's funny and it's cute. And then that ending happens and it pisses me off. Uh, and then I, I did see the most recent Off-Broadway revival, which was camp to its core. I mean, uh, just camp to the walls, camp, 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 camp. And it did have a heart, but it was camp to the max. And I absolutely loved it. And I, I was like, oh, this is the show that I want. This is, to me, the, the best version of this show. But I would also say, artistically speaking, I am definitely a person who loves big-hearted characters and loves 
I mean, somewhere that's green is so touching. And I personally, as a creative, would be nervous that that heart would be lost if you play up that camp. Now, I will say with that off-Broadway production, I did not feel that they had lost the heart of the show, despite its overly campy nature. But Annika, I guess my question would be, how do you think you ride that line? And do you think one version is more right than the other? Or, you know, how do you engage with that when you're engaging with the material? It's such a good question. And I think it's such a tricky line to walk because the reality is, yes, as you said, the show is built on a certain level of camp, on a certain level of humor, on a certain level of pastiche, on a certain level of farce, like all of these things are in the DNA of the show very strongly. And if you ignore them, the show will not work the way it is intended to work. But at the same time, lots of people have made the mistake of thinking that something that is any one of those things should be only those things and that you don't need to ground it. And that also is a mistake because ultimately if you don't care about anybody on stage, you don't care what happens. And basically why should anybody care about your show? Um, so I think you just have to find the balance between them um, in a way that allows you to connect with these characters while also never telling the audience that what is happening to them is 100% serious. They have to believe it 100%, but the reason that the characters are in there like the urchins, you know, who are basically a Greek chorus, which is doing a kind of comedy Brechtian thing where it's like separating you from the action that's happening a little bit. Um, you know, there's a lot of those things in it that are helping you as a person who's making this show to walk those fine lines and they're all in there for a reason. Um, I do think the debate about the ending is a really interesting debate to have in this show because I don't know, I like parts of both of the endings that they came up with for it. And actually I'm surprised that this show doesn't have the ending that I would have expected this show to have given the Faustian bargain element of it, which is that to me, it feels like the ending that bridges both gaps would probably be something in which Audrey is killed as the kind of ultimate price is too high for Seymour's bargain that he made, but, but Seymour actually survives and ultimately does manage to defeat the plant is kind of the world that I would have expected this to land. Dark, but not so dark, um, which is not as dark as the ending in the show is, which is that uh, the plants are victorious and uh, humanity is going to be ultimately destroyed and Seymour and Audrey are just punished for this kind of bad choice that we never actually really see Seymour making because he has this plant and he, you know, there's never a moment where he actually actively makes that choice. Well, it comes, well, there is, but it comes later um, for well, him than mostly when, when you usually encounter this kind of story. And I think I would say to that end too, I mean, the ending I think does have to be a part of your calculation of how you're dealing with the entire piece, because if, if, that ending that you just described exists, I would say you should lean into the heart of the piece. And sure, it's a little campy, but I would say then that the heart is the right way to lean into it because ultimately that there is kind of, although somewhat tragic and maybe funny or, you know, whatever, it does have a moral kind of center that you can overcome it as opposed to the campy element where like, oh, well, it wins anyway, don't feed the plants. So I, there is, but in some ways, I, I, when you're talking about the 
what you were talking and I was thinking about the score in some ways it, it got me thinking is this show kind of a bit of accidental genius in the case that a song like somewhere that's green is so heart-centered and is so lovely and so innocent and so pure and like has silly you know things about it but it's so real to the character of Audrey I think and even like suddenly Seymour which is like this epically great big love number I think about it in contrast I was thinking about funny thing happened on the way to the forum which is another it's a farce it's not the same camp kind of quality but you do have the character of Pseudalus who we love in his own way but his like I want to be free which is very real the song free is not what you like walk away thinking about with funny thing happened on the way to the forum whereas I do think in the case of little shop you might walk away from Little Shop thinking about somewhere that's green. So in some ways, it's kind of the, the I don't, like I say, I, I don't think it's accidental genius, but it is kind of cutting against its own, it's almost too good for its own good on a certain level. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to say it. It's also kind of interesting because I feel like, and this is not totally thought out in my head, but I feel like when you're going for this kind of larger tone, um, the campy kind of pastiche tone, a lot of shows will will be structured the opposite way, which is that they start out much more strongly in that comedy world and then end up in someplace a lot more grounded because what happens naturally is like you grow to care about these characters by the end you are much more rooted in the reality of the circumstance rather than the beginning when you're like ha 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 this is also funny um this show does a kind of opposite thing which is that it starts out in a much more realistic place and then the ending is what's really silly where it's like you have these you know the characters you've come to know in in plant heads telling you the audience not to feed the plant i mean it's the most sort of overtly ridiculous moment in the whole show and it's the very ending which is a little bit jarring because you haven't really it's the opposite of the lobster in the pot which is what people usually do which of course is to see, you know the lobster in the pot who doesn't realize it's heating up you it, it, a tonal shift over the course of a show um can be very difficult to do and and dropping someone into comedy which is kind of like ha 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 this is all a spoof is very dangerous because you could be telling your audience oh did you care about this you shouldn't have um which is not exactly what the show does but it it is a little bit jarring when you get to that final uh, moment and you're like oh i guess this isn't really terrifying this is kind of silly ultimately but you have connected with these people you have cared about Audrey's dreams you have wanted them to be given something good after having these crappy lives their entire life you know so it does feel a little bit harsh so as of late there's been a very interesting and compelling debate in the theater world about whether or not we should have a quote-unquote hot Seymour in uh in the sense of a classically handsome man who gets glasses thrown in his face and is suddenly Seymour Krelborn. And I want to position that against a, a similar thing within Little Shop, which is that it does feel inherently quirky and inherently in that off-Broadway, not traditional musical theater, as much as we've talked about it being quite traditional in its approach in many ways, this inherently off-Broadway, off-the-beaten-path cult status style that it inhabits um it is an interesting interesting and intersection of are there shows 
that just are not Broadway shows that don't belong in the mainstream and to try to put them in the mainstream is is not to their benefit and uh, in fact just doing harm to them in, in the long run. So I, I asked the question in that way because I think the Hot Seymour debate is a nice microcosm of that debate. But Annika, how do you feel about Hot Seymour, whether or not a high quality show, even if it's a little quirkier, belongs on Broadway? Where do you fall in that debate? Yeah, um, I mean, the Hot Seymour debate arose when the most recent off-Broadway production cast Jonathan Groff, a uh, conventionally attractive man, very attractive. I think we all know how you feel about Jonathan Groff. I think, <laughs> I don't believe all of my love of him made it to the cutting room floor of the Spring Awakening episode, but uh, yes, I do. I have a, a fondness for Groff sauce. I do. A fondness, a fondness. Um, and then uh, to replace him, uh, Jeremy Jordan, another conventionally handsome man. So there was a little bit of a, a conversation about that. Um, yeah, I think in that case, my take on that is I have seen it work really well. I will say I have, I didn't see either of those guys, but I have seen it really work well with a handsome man playing Seymour, which was Jake Gyllenhaal at City Center Encores. And he's such a good actor that, uh, what he managed to do was instead of it being about a Seymour who is someone who looks like someone that the world would kind of pass by and not give many advantages to, um, he played Seymour like Seymour was just so sheltered that he would never have even realized that he was good looking. It just wouldn't have occurred to him. He wouldn't be out in the world enough to have people react to him as an attractive person. Um, but it's a storytelling thing ultimately. You can make it work with a handsome man, but you're giving yourself an obstacle because Seymour, as described in the script, as described in the story, is someone that the world ignores. And as we know of the world, sadly, it is much easier for the world at large to ignore someone who is not beautiful than it is for them to ignore someone who is this just glorious, beautiful looking person. So why not give it to a Seymour who is quirky looking, who looks like someone that you might not notice right away whom Audrey wouldn't necessarily see as a romantic object in the same way. Um, those, there are great actors like that. They're amazing character people. Like let them be a leading man for once, give them this part, which was written for them to shine. Um, and similarly, I think the off-Broadway Broadway question is definitely related to this because it's, it's kind of about, again, storytelling, but now on a slightly larger scale. When you have something that is offbeat, that is quirky, that is dark, that is weird, that is based on something that, you know, was the thing that you would watch in your house at 3 a.m. on the late night channels in your basement with your friends, it, the genesis of this piece is something that is not intended for everybody in the world to think is a great thing. It's sort of a secret thing that you love. Um, that's the, that's the, the heart of what a cult hit is. It's, it's something that you define yourself um, by liking. It's not for everybody. It isn't mainstream. Um, so I think they were very smart in the original production to keep this show off Broadway and never bring it to Broadway because Broadway is inherently mainstream. There is something big and shiny about it. And I think we've seen from the not very successful Broadway revival of this particular show, this show thrives in dark corners a little bit. 
Um, it helps to have that when you're walking in the theater, that you're seeing something that is not necessarily mainstream. It's not large scale. It's not shiny at all. Um, it's for the weirdos. It's for the oddballs. It's for the people who like this kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I think there's so much that is in this show, a celebration of the things that are not at the forefront of culture, not at the forefront front of beauty, not at the forefront of, of art and styles that everybody likes. And so the more that you can uh, place that with this show, the better you will be, the less storytelling you will have to do in the story because people will already be prepared for that kind of experience, for that kind of Seymour, for that kind of story. So yay commercial off-Broadway in general, um, and yay quirky offbeat Seymours and let this show be the weird little show that it is. It will be very, very successful and not everything has to be on Broadway. Right, it does kind of go back to that central like authenticity to itself, right? That that is kind of its most successful aspect. Yeah, absolutely. And with that, it means it's time for our favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. Where we talk about some of our favorite things about Little Shop of Horrors. So Annika, first things first, favorite character in Little Shop of Horrors. I have a... I'm going to cheat a little bit because uh, I sort of have packaged things. <laughs> so I love always a buffoonish, sadistic, uh, toxic male character uh, as a comedy character. I have a big spot for them, but I love Oren, the dentist uh, character. I think he's very funny. And it could be, I mean, it's a dark character. He's a, a sadist who uh, physically abuses Audrey, no question about that. But there is something so funny about him. Um, and the reason I'm saying I'm cheating because is because I also really love um, I Am Your Dentist. Uh, I think it's such a great song. And so I'm going to kind of uh, include that in this category and pick a different one for my favorite song. But it was a real toss up as to whether I was going to go with uh, Oren being my favorite character or Dentist being my favorite song. And I'm just going to smush them together and put them here because I do think um, it is a iconic character, comedy character. And I, whenever they do Little Shop, uh, I always want to find, I always want to hear who's playing this part because I know that this part is going to be the one that's um, just going to be the funnest, pure joy moment of the show for me is going to be someone just completely killing dentist so that's my answer a totally fair answer and and, and mine is horrendously i mean uh, we barely talked about audrey too and like the monstrosity that is that and i in the way that you're talking about the dentist i'm always curious what they're gonna do with audrey too and who's gonna voice audrey too and who's doing the puppet i always think that's so interesting but i think just because of my personal nature I love Seymour. I mean, he's such a sweetie and I'm a, I'm boring so many times with the, my favorite character, but I love Seymour. It's, I mean, an Audrey sweet too, but like Seymour is such a precious little angel. I mean, how can you not love, I just love Seymour. Yeah. I think that just means that the show is doing its work. If you care about the protagonist the most. 
I mean, that's fair. It just feels boring. I want to be more interesting than that, but I love Seymour. Um, so, okay. So since you did not pick the, the dentist song as your favorite song, what would be your favorite song in the score? Well, in terms of songs I want to listen to over and over, I really, really think that Skid Row is a top level opening number for a musical. One of the greats. It doesn't really get included in that conversation a lot, but um, it brilliantly sets up the setting for the show, the tone of the show in many ways, um, Seymour, just basically what you're working with. I also am, have a great fondness for the very odd characters of the urchins who are like adult women who are sort of also children and definitely like a girl group from the 60s and they're sort of like actually kind of play a large role in the plot even though they're also sort of these narrator characters who exist outside of the plot whatever we could get into that but it it all is fine for me because I'm I'm having such fun listening to Skid Row um, which is just a, it's just a bop, that song. Well, I mean, in a similar vein, I was going to say, I, the thing I sing the most from the show is the prologue and just the little shop, little shop of horrors. I sing that to myself all the time, regardless of if we're diving into the show on uh, on the program or not. But yeah. I think favorite song, I mean, I know you dove into somewhere that's green, which is obviously so like wonderful in its way and its sincerity, but also like, two people belting out suddenly Seymour. I mean, there are a few things more enjoyable in musical theater. So I think I have to give it to suddenly Seymour just because what, I mean, what a powerhouse, like, you know, power ballad, just like duet for, for two phenomenal performers. So, uh, so suddenly Seymour gets my favorite song award. Yes, I think that's a great pick. So what's your favorite miscellaneous thing about Little Shop of Horrors? My favorite miscellaneous thing is also sort of a cheat because it could also qualify as a character. Um, Audrey too, for sure. Um, both because I do love Audrey too as a character. I, in addition to having a soft spot for buffoonish toxic male comedy characters, I have a great soft spot for just straight up evil characters and Audrey too is that. But also such personality this plant has. But aside, even aside from that, um, I always think it's fascinating how the puppetry works, how people choose to do this puppetry. It's very specifically listed in the script when you see Audrey II grow, because there, obviously there has to be everything from the very small initial version to the enormous version at the end. And it's kind of always um, something that can be incredibly creative. And there's certain people on my wish list to have do this show because I want to see what they do with Audrey too. Like I would love to see Machine Dazzle who does all of Taylor Max costumes um, have at Audrey too. I think it would be fantastic. But um, also it's another one of my favorite things which is something that goes from being um, funny or innocuous to being very scary. And uh, there are really those moments with the progression of Audrey too, with these moments with Audrey too, where uh, the character goes from something that is fun to something really terrifying. And I, I just love everything about Audrey too, always. No, but it's a great point. I mean, I, I think there's so much psychosis of ourselves that we probably reveal as we are discussing these shows and <laughs> analyzing them. But yeah. I mean, it's a good point. It's incredibly entertaining and to uh, have it transform before our eyes and just the sheer theatricality of 
having a giant puppet. I mean, I, I, I personally love puppets. I know some people are very anti-puppet. And to those people, I say shut up. Um, but, <laughs> um, but I think my favorite miscellaneous thing about Little Shop is probably just the shared kind of rite of passage that so many theater people go through in terms of being a part of a small high school drama program that does Little Shop and like who they played and the sheer just kind of high school drama club we're all weird and doing this weird show together nature of it I think is so fun. So I think that probably gets my list of, I, I did not get that rite of passage. So maybe it's like the fact that I never went to summer camp. I'm like jealous of people who got to go to <laughs> summer camp. Like I don't really know the joy or the pain, but <laughs> I think it's, it's such a, the, the scrappy downtown uh, kind of big heart, but low production value nature of this show. I think that the charm, the inherent charm that it has is, while I mean it's kind of all wrapped up into one thing for me but that that nature about it is my favorite miscellaneous thing and that brings us to one of our final segments corner of the sky gotta find my corner of the sky where we talk about this show's place in the musical theater canon so I think it's undeniable that this show is a jewel of the small musical uh, canon for, you know, the, the specific part of the canon of musical theater that is small cast, quote unquote, easily producible, quirky, um, very authentic, specific kind of humor. Everything we've already discussed about the style of the show is certainly its own corner in a corner of the sky why we named the segment that um but i also think it, it we would be derelict in our jobs if we didn't talk about the debut of alan menken and howard ashman in a true like first big big success way and the subsequent uh impact that they have on musical theater through their work at Disney that like then kind of transforms Broadway in the nineties with Disney on Broadway and whatever. But I do think the integrity of, and the integrity and belief in musical theater, particularly in Howard Ashman and the passion with which he fought and fought for and defended and believed in classic musical theater conventions and strengths and what it does as an art form is inherent to Little Shop of Horrors and to his subsequent work. And I think a, a large reason that the American musical remains strong and healthy as an art form. That might be over sentimental on my part because I really like their work between the two of them in their own respected ways. Uh, and this is the first major collaboration. But Annika, what would you say is Little Shop's Corner of the Sky? Well, certainly you're right. Um, as a debut for those two talents, I mean, uh, uh, they did, this was not the first show they did, but as you said, it was the one that really put them on the map um, in a way that Rosewater really did not. Um, I think that this show is so influential to the shows that came after it. Um, in terms of the space it occupies 
in that weird mix of comedy, horror, pastiche, heart, all of those things blended together in this particular brew. Um, I just see that seed planted uh, that sprouts in so many other artists' work. I mean, there are so many composers that I know of who love this show and it's just the pinnacle and you can just see its influence in like, I mean, Joe Iconis is the one that hops to mind who is very open about how this is like his favorite show and has created a lot of stuff that are is in that same vein, that horror, pastiche, 60s, retro, but heart, etc. I mean, something like Heather's feels like another one. Um, it just basically is kind of the spiritual granddaddy of all the dark, funny, weird shows to follow. And as someone who really, really loves dark, weird shows with a lot of humor that are somewhere between um, funny and campy and uh, tr truly like deep and dark, um, I really think that this show opened a door for those shows to exist. So I think it's one of the most, I mean, I think it's probably the most influential off-Broadway show I can think of um, in terms of the industry of theater and musical theater and, and um, Broadway itself. Well, that wraps it up for our deep dive into Little Shop of Horrors. But before we go, Annika has to give us a clue as to what comes next. What comes next? I'm very excited for our next episode, and here is your teaser about it. It is going to be about a show that went through several potential titles, including Liza and Lady Liza, and my personal favorite, Fanfaroon. And the title that it ended up with is arguably just as not great as any of those. <laughs> Well, it certainly ends with a weird title. I think that's a solid clue for any musical theater nerds out there, such as myself. I think you could read between those titles and figure out what we'll be looking at, but maybe there'll be some clues on our social channels too. Don't forget to follow us at In The Spot Pod, all you spotters out there. But until then, we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. This podcast has been a presentation of Goodspeed Musicals, produced by the artistic staff and edited by me, Michael Fling. This podcast would also not be possible without the generous support of the Sennheiser Electric Corporation, the Burry Frederick Foundation, Webster Bank, and the Richard P. Garmany Fund at the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving. If you enjoyed the show and would like to financially support Goodspeed, please visit goodspeed.org. See you next time.